0: Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin class for prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we again are thankful to be able to call you our Father and for the love and the truth that you've revealed to us. And we ask that your Spirit will join us. Let us grow every day to be more like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson 10 in the quarterly Oneness in Christ. And the uh, title for the lesson is Unity and Broken Relationships. First question as we go through this is what is the basis? For a healthy relationship, the foundation, the basis, the requirements for a healthy relationship. <clears throat> two two words, what? Trust. You got it, love and trust. So let's break that down. What is love? The love that's the basis for a healthy relationship. How would you describe it or define it? Well, love is a principle, it's not that... Feel so love is a principle. Yes, the principle of other-centered motivation, concern, care, regard, desire for the health, welfare, and beneficence of another. That's what love is. I am concerned for your health and welfare. My heart is for your good. Um, so how does love function? Does love, if if you love somebody, do you always give them what they want? <laughs> If you love somebody, do you avoid taking actions that you know before you take them will cause the other person pain? Do you avoid that? Always avoid it. No, No, you don't always avoid it if you love them. If you're acting in love in their best interest, many times we take actions that are protective to them, but it might harm them. Something as simple as a child stepping out in front of a, a car and you yank them back so hard it causes them a moment of pain in their arm. Right? You weren't trying to hurt them, but you don't avoid taking the action because you know it's gonna hurt. Do you? No. Love does what's best. So love does what's best in the interest of others, given the context, the understood impact, the opportunity that you have, the position you hold in the person's life, all those things are taken into account. Let's talk about trust. How do you define trust? Experience tells you if you can trust the person or not. That's correct. Experience tells you, but how do you define trust? What is trust? This type of trust that's the basis for a healthy relationship. Is it not confidence in the other without any fear or doubt? Isn't that what it is? That I I trust without any fear or doubt. I have confidence in you. I don't doubt you. That's what trust is. So, I propose there are four elements to actually having healthy trust or confidence. Another word is faith in another. Four elements. First, the other person must genuinely love you more than they love themselves and would sacrifice for your, wel- for your welfare. Thus, they won't betray you or turn on you or become your enemy. Does God meet this criteria? Yes, he does. And think about how deeply trust in God is undermined by legal theologies that put God in the role of the source of punishment from whom you must be protected. In other words, if trust requires that they won't turn on me, they won't betray me, they won't harm me, they're always for me, but now I'm teaching that this person, if I don't have some action taken, will hurt me. Think of how trust is undermined. But let's say you have a being, a person who genuinely loves you more than self and would sacrifice for you, would not betray you. Is that quality alone enough to establish trust? Your six-year-old child may have this love for you, and if you were in danger, they might run into harm's way in order to protect you. But do you let your six-year-old? But but if you tell your six-year-old not to take a piece of candy or to wait their turn. Do you have complete confidence or trust that your 6-year-old will be able to fulfill those directions? Even though they have love for you. So in order to actually have trust, you have to have more than others centered love. And you have to have the second element, which is mature self-governance, the ability to reliably and consistently carry out what has been set, what they said they would do. Right? You have to have both. You have to have maturity and you have to have other-centered love. Now, why is love for you, genuine love for you, and self-governance, somebody really has shown they can govern and do what they say, not enough to establish trust? Why is that not enough? You would think that's enough, right? It's not enough. Why is it not enough? Could a person genuinely love you, seek your good, But misunderstand God's designs and laws for relationships such that their love for you and their self-governance seeks, directs them to control you, to rule over you, to dominate you, to discipline you, believing with all sincerity that you are supposed to be not an equal in the relationship, but a subordinate under their governance. Could that happen? So in addition to genuine love for you, in addition to self-governance, the person has this, the third element, which is wisdom or understanding of how reality works and operate in harmony with God's law. Or at least have a mindset that they love to grow and, under, and move in, in harmony with God's law. If they don't fully understand it, their heart is willing to move that way. They at least have to have that. Now, does God meet number one? He loves you more than self. Does he meet number two? He's got self-control and self-governance. Does he meet number three? F- full wisdom. Okay? So those three are required, in my view. And then there's a fourth one in order for you to experience trust. And that is you have to actually know the person for yourself who has and possesses and practices these elements. You can't hear about it from another person and say, hey, my dad is really trustworthy, and you actually trust them. You have to experience the person, have time with them. And this is where a lot of people will come to others and say, you need to trust Jesus. But they don't know Jesus. They've never spent time with him. Now, what undermines our ability to trust someone who is actually trustworthy? The person that we need to establish trust in is has all three of these. They love you, they're mature, and they um, and they have wisdom. If you meet somebody like that, could you still have difficulty trusting them? And if so, what are the obstacles? Lies. <laughs> okay, you guys have said many of them. Let's let's unpack them. Um, somebody so wounded and hurt from previous experiences, uh, betrayals that. Even dealing with somebody who is trustworthy, they don't see the trustworthiness. They're suspicious and they see and project out their fears and doubts on that other person and see them through the lens of their past experiences. (coughs) Second, doubting one's own judgment. Having been burned in the past, having trusted someone in the past, and having been exploited or taken advantage of, they doubt their ability to discern whether somebody... Is trustworthy or not? So they don't want to trust because they don't have confidence in their ability to. Like, I just don't know. I just don't know. I, I, what you guys said—somebody telling lies and believing lies about someone who's untrustworthy—is another reason that undermines trust. And then the fourth reason: being so hard-hearted and selfish. And untrustworthy in your own character that you see everyone else through the lens of your own character. You don't trust, you're not trustworthy, so you don't think anybody else is trustworthy either. So healthy relationships are designed by God to operate on love and trust. And love and trust are attributes of living beings, so we could say healthy relationships require healthy people. Healthy people love others more than self, have governance of self, and are wise in God's laws. We could say that, couldn't we? Yeah. Now with this in mind, let's turn to the lesson and t- discuss some of the things in the lesson today. For um, Wednesday's lesson, we'll jump to Wednesday. We'll come back to the others, and I'm hoping to have time to do that. First paragraph says, What is forgiveness? Does forgiveness justify the behavior of someone who has horribly wronged us? Is my forgiveness dependent on the offender's repentance? What if the one with whom i'm upset does not desire my forgiveness. Sure. So if someone has been wronged, then we're so we talk about the issue of forgiveness here and look at these questions. If someone has been wronged, can they experience healing of their heart and mind without forgiving the wrongdoer? Contemplate. If you've been wronged, can you experience healing of your heart and mind without forgiving the wrongdoer? If a person has been wronged, if the person who has been wronged forgives the wrongdoer, who always gets changed by the experience of forgiving the wrongdoer? The person wronged. The one who does the forgiving will be changed by that action and experience. If a person who has been wronged refuses to forgive, who always experiences more injury? the person refusing to forgive. This is design law stuff. You can't avoid it. Teach my patients this stuff all the time. See, if you violate the laws of health, you can't avoid health problems. If you make healthy decisions in your life, you start exercising, for instance, you can't avoid getting stronger. If forgiveness is a requirement to healing... After being wronged, what prevents so many people from doing it? I I spelled this out pretty simply. You guys saw it very clearly. Yep. If the person who's been wronged has to forgive and they're changed by it, the wrongdoer is not changed by it, they can't heal without uh, forgiving, uh, then why do so many people struggle to do so? Believing lies, misunderstanding what forgiveness is and what it means. And so I'm going to go through some of the myths of forgiveness with you guys this morning. You know, Kate came to see me. She was depressed, anxious, upset, distraught. Uh, She was being pressured by her pastor. You see, her husband had just cheated on her for the sixth time. Sixth time. First time it happened, she asked him to leave. He ran to the pastor, confessed to the pastor, I've sinned, I've wronged my wife, I've asked Jesus to forgive me, but my wife has asked me to leave or thrown me out. The pastor went to Kate and said, look, your husband has sinned against you. He's confessed, he's asked the Lord's forgiveness. Can't you see your way clear to forgive him? The Bible says you are forgiven your sins as you forgive others. And so she forgave him and took him back. And this happened again and again and again. (laughs) Same exact thing, went to the pastor each time, And now she's in my office after the sixth time, and the pastor has visited and said, Your husband uh, has asked the Lord to forgive him. Uh, Will you forgive him and take him back? And so, the first myth of forgiveness, why some people won't forgive, is because they believe this myth. And this is the myth forgiveness equals restore trust. That's a myth. Trust is restored when the offender is actually changed to be trustworthy and the offended forgives. But forgiving an untrustworthy person doesn't restore trust. It can heal the wounds inside the one who's been offended, but it cannot heal the relationship when you're dealing with an untrustworthy person. Does that make sense to everyone? There's three types of distrust, and we went through them just a moment ago. There's the selfish, malevolent person who who is out to harm for themselves. That person doesn't love you. They can't be trusted. But there's the child who means to do well, who actually does love you, but they're immature and can't handle the responsibilities. This was Kate's husband. He wasn't a chronologic child. He was an emotional, characterological child. He really loved her. He, had, he didn't set out to hurt her. It wasn't his intention to cause her harm. But he did not have the maturity to fulfill the responsibilities of loyalty and devotion. And he would find himself in positions where his own insecurities would come in and, and he would be flattered in some relationship and, and he would seek comfort and some type of adoration because he didn't feel good about himself because he was so immature. And he would fall into these relationships over and over again as a way to make himself feel better about himself because he was immature, but he had no intention. And then he would be sorry, because she would find out, and she would get hurt, and I never. And then he would, in confession to her, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? And he would be quite sincere. And you could put him, and I, I promise I'll never do it again, mommy. <laughs> this is how children often are, right, that haven't had the maturity yet. And if you put him on a lie detector, he'd probably pass it at that moment, because he isn't intending to deceive. This is Peter in the upper room. This is Peter when he says, no, Lord, if all the rest go, I won't deny you. I won't do it. He would have passed the lie detector, but he didn't have the maturity. Okay? The unwise person that doesn't understand these levels of trust are often taken in by the sincerity of the moment. They can perceive that he really means it. She really means it. She's not lying right now. And so they're taken in and they give, and they extend trust again without any evidence of Mastery gained over self. Third, the unwise person who applies the wrong principles thinking they're doing the right thing. That was the third form of untrustworthiness. So myth number one, forgiveness means restore trust. Myth number two, forgiveness comes after the offender says they're sorry. Bob was angry, bitter, hurt, resentful. His sister had come over, brought beer, gotten him drunk, and then stolen his rare coin collection that he'd, been, that he'd uh, been saving or started since childhood. She took the coins, left the state, sold them to buy drugs. Bob was angry. He came to see me because his wife said, you need to deal with this because it was affecting all his home. He was irritable, he was grumpy, he was angry, he was snappy all the time. And their marriage and their home and their kids were all being affected by it flew off the handle and he refused to forgive. As we talked about this, he refused to forgive until his sister came back and asked for forgiveness. What does the Bible say leads to repentance? Romans 2.4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. When Adam sinned, what happened? What's, what happened after Adam sinned in the relationship with God? Well, Adam ran and hid because he was afraid. Why was he afraid? Was God now his enemy? Think this through. He's running and hiding from God. Was, God. was God his enemy? Was God seeking to injure or harm him? Was there any resource in the entire planet other than God to help out Adam out of his sin problem? Then why did Adam run? He was lied to, yes, because he no longer trusted God, because he believed the lies. He wasn't trusting him, and therefore he was afraid. And so what did God do? God ran after Adam. Why did God run after Adam? To, to put him up on a post and beat him? To discipline, to punish, to exact vengeance upon, or to heal and restore their friendship? And God has been running after human beings ever since. Certainly something changed in his character that he, he believed he believed something about God that wasn't true. But, but I don't think Adam was lied to. Eve was one was lied to by the serpent. And then she became an agent of that deception. By proxy. And then she became an agent of that deception by presenting the fruit to Adam, and she had not yet no, demonstrated any... She hadn't died, and she hadn't demonstrated any negative consequence yet. She wasn't living in fear yet. And so she became an agent that, hey, you know what? We were told we'd die. Look at this. Serpent can talk. I'm not dead. So doubted, what, doubted whether that plan was the right plan. Or he said willingly, with full knowledge of what would happen, or... Or, or he, chose, he chose to, he chose Eve over God. Yes, right. Okay. He decided, you know what, if she's lost, I won't be lost with her. So rather than a lie then, maybe we say he didn't trust God to solve the problem. So trusting God was still undermined. Probably, yes, right. yeah, no question, no question. But, but in this case, he, he loved her so much, he didn't trust God to have a solution to keep her if he didn't go with her. Right. So trust was still undermined. We good with that, yeah, thank you for that. When God ran after Adam, had God already forgiven adam in, in god 's heart, or was God unforgiving toward Adam, and something needed to be done in order to get God to forgive him so what came first in human in the human situation here in sin god 's forgiveness or man 's repentance. God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. Did Christ die to get God to forgive us? To enable God to open up a legal pathway where God was allowed to forgive us? Uh, get your mind around this because this is actually what much of Christianity teaches, and it's a lie. And it prevents people from actually experiencing reconciliation with God. It's the lie of the penal substitution theology that teaches Jesus had to die in order to pay a legal penalty or else God could not legally forgive us. It's a requirement. So God was wanting to, but he couldn't do it. He had to pay this penalty. Some Bible translations actually translate this lie into the Bible. In Hebrews 9.22, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Other Bible translations come more closely to what it should say. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And what is remission? What's the difference? If you have cancer and you're terminal, do you want the forgiveness of the healthcare system? We forgive you for having this terminal disease. You're forgiven. Or do you want your cancer to go into remission? Do you want the cancer cells to remit back to their previous healthy state? See, without the shedding of Christ's blood, without his victory at the cross, then sin in human beings could not be remitted. We could not be restored back to God's original ideal. Another distortion about myth two is forgiveness is a legal process that requires payment. This is from accepting the imperial law lie that God makes rules like humans do. And consider the contradictions here. And, this, and, and these contradictions then dethrone human reason and prevent people from, come, let us reason together. Your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. It's reasoning with God and comprehending the truth. The truth will set you free. But instead, we teach the stuff that causes us not to reason. It makes no sense. We just accept it. We stop thinking we can't be set free. But notice this contradiction what people have with this legal view. Many people believe that Jesus died in order to pay the legal debt to pay for our sins, and also, as Jesus prayed, that God forgives us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Hmm. Can you forgive a debt and also collect on the debt? If you owed somebody 100 bucks and you couldn't pay it, and your brother comes along, pulls out the wallet, hands him 100 bucks, and said, hey, you're paid. And the person now says, okay, now that I've been paid and I've collected that $100, bucks, i am going to go ahead and forgive your debt. Does that work? that's what the penal substitution thing does that jesus paid your debt but god forgives your debt and you go what that's not how reality works that's contradictory that makes us i'll just take that on faith i'll stop reasoning i'll stop thinking i remain in this fog myth uh, myth number one forgiveness means restore trust myth number two forgiveness comes after the offender says they're sorry myth number three forgiveness equals salvation this comes from believing the problem with sin is a legal problem with God rather than our condition, and thus if we get God to forgive us, once God forgives us, once he pardons, he's the ruling authority, and if the ruling pardon forgives and thard- pardons, boom, you're good. It misdiagnoses the problem. Consider those who put Christ on the cross. What did Christ say? Did he forgive them? This is God the Son who previously in his ministry said, so that you might know that I have the power on earth to forgive sins, take up your bed and walk. He is the power to forgive sins. Did he forgive their sins against him? Were they now his friends? Were they saved? No. Forgiveness does not equal salvation. Salvation is healing, reconstructing, restoring godliness within, reconciliation can bring us back into unity with God. And reconciliation requires both forgiveness of the wrongdoer, which God already does, but repentance by the wrongdoer. Forgiveness of the one who's been wrong, repentance by the wrongdoer. A change in heart. Forgiveness alone is useless. I'm going to tell you, forgiveness alone is useless. If your child disobeyed your instructions to never mess with the household cleaners under the sink and somehow disobeyed and drank some of those cleaners and poisoned themselves, would you forgive your child for disobeying you? Would you? Yes, you would. Would your forgiveness be all that's required to save your child? There's something more required. See, forgiveness alone is useless. Something more is required. If serial killer Ted Bundy or son of Sam were alive today and were legally pardoned by the President of the United States, set free from prison, would you want them as your next-door neighbor? (laughs) But they're forgiven. Why wouldn't you? How about if somebody truly loved them and offered to pay their legal debt and be executed in their place, and then because their debt's been paid, they're set free from prison, would you want them as your neighbor? Do you see the corruption of this penal legal thing that cur- prevents the church from fulfilling its mission? There's a hand over here somewhere. Yes? I heard you say in the past that Jesus had to be perfected here on earth, just be perfect as I am perfect. Him forgiving those who crucified him would be part of that problem. There's no question. As a human being, yes. If he, See, this is the consequence. If you don't forgive, what happens to your character? Jesus forgave because not only was the right thing to do, not only godly, but it was the only healthy path forward for him and his human his humanity. If he would have held resentment and bitterness, then he would have held on then he would have held on or taken the temptation of selfishness and corrupted his own character. So you're exactly right. Myth number one, forgiveness means restore trust. Myth number two, forgiveness comes after the offender says they're sorry. Number three, forgiveness equals salvation. Four, forgiveness leads to greater vulnerability. Myth number four. Sheila came to see me with a long history of depression, mood instability, anxiety, sleep problems, inability to relax, panic, nightmares, inability to trust, and fear of getting hurt. She reported she'd been raped in college and was filled with an incredible amount of rage and anger. As the therapy progressed, we discussed at the proper point her heart forgiving her rapist. But she said she would never forgive him because the anger that she held onto to made her feel strong, and she was like a lion coiled, ready to attack. If anybody tried to offend her again, she had this rage built up, and she was going to unload on them. She was safe because she was angry. She believed that myth that forgiveness leads to greater vulnerability. Imagine you lay out on the beach in Miami, Florida, in July, you fall asleep on the beach at ten in the morning, you wake up at four in the afternoon, you had no sunscreen on. Oh. Okay, you've got a really bad sunburn on your back. You were face down, sunburn on your back. So bad you can't even lean back in a chair. You're sitting there with just a white t-shirt on really loose. And your three-year-old jumps on your back to play. What do you do? (laughs) Would you scream and yank them off? How about your husband or wife, your spouse comes in and gives you a big bear hug because they love you. What would you do? Would you scream and push them away? Somebody slaps you on the back. What do you do? You see, when you're burned, you lose the ability to tell the difference between touches of play, touches of love, and touches of aggression. Everything hurts and you push everyone away. I'm going to tell you, most people who are emotionally burned, they live in fear and they have a wound and it's real tender. And, they, and so the best strategy, now think about that physical sunburn. Best strategy? To figure a way that no one ever touches you again or to heal the sunburn. What's the best strategy? But many people with emotional burns actually set up these constructs in the way they deal with people so they never let anyone get close again because they don't want to get hurt. They don't actually heal the burn. In the, is the myth true that if she forgives, she's more vulnerable? If people forgive after some exploitation like a rape, does that mean that they take less precautions? They don't lock their doors. They walk alone in strange places at night. Does that mean that's what they do? Or they actually are more vigilant and still and more cautious because of the experience. So they're actually less vulnerable. Maybe they carry mace with them now and they never did before. Many other things they could do to reduce vulnerability, right? Forgiveness is the means of healing the wounds that have been inflicted by others upon us. So, for, myth number one forgiveness restores trust. Two, forgiveness comes after the offenders so they're sorry. Three, forgiveness equals salvation. Four, forgiveness leads to greater vulnerability. Five, forgiveness means forgetting. Does forgiveness mean forgetting, class? No. What is wrong with you? Don't you believe the Bible? <laughs> Isaiah 43:25, I even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Hebrews 8:12, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Are you contradicting God? No. no. Are you contradicting the Bible? No. So when we forgive, do we do we forget? So what does this mean then? I'm going to tell you, I'm just playing a little devil's advocate here because this is what you'll get. The legal people will throw these verses up and claim them as if when you've... Let's let's, let's come let us reason together. The reason they do this is because the legal uh, proponents believe that when they confess the sins, they're erased out of the books of heaven. And the memories of all the sinless and the saved who are in heaven are will be adjusted so they have no recollection of all those sins, so that when you get to heaven, people will not know the wicked things you've done. Well, let's think that through. When we're reading our Bibles, anytime here in class at home, do our guardian angels get to know what we're reading? If we read it out loud, do they get to hear what we're reading? If we read about David and Bathsheba, and David, of course, confessed his sin and was forgiven, do the angels in heaven go, what are they talking about? they're making stuff up. There's nothing like that in the books of heaven. We don't know anything about that. Is that what happens? When we get to heaven, will we know our loved ones? Will David know Bathsheba? Will David and Bathsheba know Solomon? Will Uriah know Bathsheba? Will Uriah, and Solomon comes along and says, Hey mom, will Uriah look and say... Whose son is that? Will they know? How did that happen? Will they know? Will it matter at that point in history that they do know? Why won't it matter? And it won't matter, guys. It won't matter. Imagine you're a nominating committee to serve a children's department in your church, and before, as they're discussing your name, somebody on the board, you know, what we call them the do gooders, right? Somebody on the board has to let the board know and they say, before you vote on this person, I need to let you know. You have to know something about this person. When they were 11, they had a bad infection and they had vomiting all over their mother's new couch and diarrhea all over the carpet. What would the board do? Somebody actually did that. What would the board do? (laughs) Would the board look kind of confused and go, why are you telling us this? well because it was gross it was disgusting it was awful well I'm sure that it was but what's the critical question what's the operational question are they sick today see if somebody had some type of infectious viral thing that caused this would you want them to go in and hang out with the kids no it might have been gross but the operational question are they sick today well no they're actually quite healthy today then does that matter It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. When we get to heaven, we may have a history of sin sickness that is disgusting and gross. But the only question that matters, are we still sin sick or have we experienced the healing of heart and mind to be like Jesus? That's the question that matters. And if the answer is yes, then there's no need to erase the memories or adjust the historical records because... Knowing all those things enhances our love and appreciation for God. Remember Mary Magdalene comes in washes Jesus' feet and anoints them, and they begin to criticize, and Jesus, not, after he silenced the critics, he says, those who are forgiven much, love much. Think that through. Your child's dying of leukemia. Nobody's been able to provide a cure. They're, they're on the, you know that this is the last few hours of their life. You're holding their hand, you see there, and a new doctor comes in, administers a treatment that is a miraculous cure, and your child gets well, and the leukemia goes into remission, and you have them restored to you. Would you have appreciation for that doctor? And, 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 and let's say they did it for free. Would you have appreciation for that doctor? And what happens if tomorrow when you wake up you have a healthy child, no leukemia, but you have no memory of the sickness or the cure? Do you still love the doctor as much? That's what the penal group wants to do to your relationship with God. Think that through. It's a corrosion in our Christianity. So how do do we then understand the text that I read, though? He forgives our sins and we'll remember them no more. How do we understand that? Relationally. You have a child, and your child is uh, told a fib and told a little story. Now, as a parent, what comes first? Your forgiveness of the child or the child's repentance? You forgive them, but you seek to get them on a path of health. So you might discipline from the root disciple to teach them a better way. And in that discipline and that discussion with the child, because you've already forgiven them and loved them and only want them to be healthy, they repent, and they're sorrowful, and there's reconciliation with hugs and kisses all around. It's been addressed. You've already forgiven, they've repented, there's reconciliation. Tomorrow when your child comes home from school, and they come up the driveway, and they see you, and they run to you, they jump in your arms, do you say, oh, here comes that little liar of mine? <laughs> you see, as far as the relationship is concerned, it's forgotten, isn't it? Once it's been removed from the character and the heart, it's not between you. God doesn't have to take an action anymore. He doesn't have to take an intervention. There's nothing to be fixed, restored, healed, corrected any longer because you've been restored to righteousness. I don't have to think about all those interventions anymore. Does that mean there's no recollection of what's been done in the past? No, that's what it means. That when you go to God, you don't have to worry about him looking at you and thinking about all the sickness in the past or the problems. You know he's going to see you as that wonderful child who just wants to jump in his daddy's arms. But this type of forgetting can only safely happen when genuine repentance has occurred. And so many people I know in relationships where somebody has betrayed that trust deeply want to trust the other person again, want that restored relationship, and extend it and try to forget the offenses of the past because the person said they're sorry without any evidence that there's been repentance or maturity or change of heart, and they get burned again. And then one last myth, sixth one. Forgiveness, myth, forgiveness means the offender gets away with it. Sherry was bitter, angry, lifelong history of mood problems, irritable, anxious, relationship problems, inability to relax, chronic feelings of emptiness, loneliness, worthlessness, inability to trust, always afraid of getting exploited, always suspicious in relationships. She was molested from 5 to 12 by her uncle, but she never told, he was never caught, and he was never punished. She refused to forgive, as we talked about this, because... He was never caught. Therefore, forgiving would be like he got away with it. And she won't let him get away with it. She's going to hold him accountable. You see, this misunderstands, and again, it comes from the penal view. In the penal view, what's wrong? You break a rule, and that rule has to be enforced by somebody. If it's not enforced and there's no punishment, then the person gets away. That's the penal thinking that infects her thinking that keeps her from experiencing God's healing for her. Here's reality, folks. The reality God's laws are design laws, and you can never exploit another person without damaging yourself. You can never commit an act of sin without hardening your heart, searing your conscience, warping your character. You can never avoid it. And so to help them see this, my patients, I ask the question at the right time. You can't do this in the beginning of a counseling session, but when you build a relationship and get to a certain point, you can ask these questions. Who do you think got damaged? And I I use my my language very precisely. Who do you think got damaged? I think it's the word hurt damaged. Worse, you or your uncle. Use the word hurt, that can be confusing. Use the word damaged. They always say me. I said, okay, let's take that at face value. Now imagine this, God takes you to heaven right now and gives you one choice between two options. Option A, I'm going to send you back to earth, you pick your life up just where I took you a second ago, nothing has changed, you get to continue your life as it is. Option B, I'll let you trade places with your uncle and you get to go around molesting kids, but no one molests you. Whose life do you choose? 100% of my patients choose their own. I go, why? And then the light goes off and they realize when someone sins against you, they can damage your body. They can damage your emotions. They can damage your psychology. We get the bad, distorted thinking in your head and, and relationship problems. But they cannot damage your soul. Your conscience remains clear. Your character remains uncorrupted. But when you sin against another person, something else gets damaged, and you realize that. Whoa. And that's why this is a myth. If you forgive somebody, they get away with it. No, they don't. No one ever gets away with it. There's always damage. With all this in mind, now let's turn to Sunday's lesson. It's important. We need to lay this out here. Because you look at Sunday's lesson, you're going to see that the lesson, authors... Do what the lesson authors typically do. They misdiagnose and misapply because they see things through a legal lens. So let's read the first three paragraphs. Paul and Barnabas worked together in witnessing for Jesus, but they had a disagreement over whether they could trust one one as fearful as John Mark. The potential danger of preaching the gospel caused John Mark at one point to desert Paul and Barnabas and return home. The desertion caused Paul to judge Mark unfavorably and... Even severely for a time, Barnabas, on the other hand, was inclined to excuse him because of his inexperience. He felt anxious that Mark should not abandon the ministry, for he saw him, in him qualifications that would fit him as a useful worker of Christ. And that's, That second paragraph was quoted out of Acts of the Apostles. Continue on with the lesson. Although God used all these men, the issue between them needed resolution. The apostle who preached grace needed to extend grace to the younger preacher who had disappointed him. The apostle of forgiveness needed to forgive. John Mark grew in the affirming mentorship of of Barnabas, and eventually Paul's heart was apparently touched by the changes. Was the problem with Paul, who didn't want to work with John Mark, one of an unwillingness to forgive? I do not think so at all. I think the problem was that Paul didn't trust John Mark. Was it because he didn't think John Mark loved others? Remember the elements of trust? I don't think that was it. Or was it because John Mark had demonstrated a lack of maturity to handle the responsibility at that time in his life? And even Ellen White says because of his inexperience. Because of, he was like a, an intern who, when they were put in the operating room for the first time, no, it's too much, I can't do it, and they left the operating room. And Paul, senior surgeon, said, look, I don't want to work with that guy. Another surgeon said, you know what, I'm willing to, to work slowly with him, bring him along, build up his skill set, build his confidence, I see potential in him. See, I don't think this was an issue of unforgiveness at all. I think it was Paul was wanting someone who was already a master surgeon of hearts, so to speak, to work with him. He saw himself on the edge of the of the battle, the the, the tip of the spear, so to speak. He, he wasn't necessarily wanting to to be in the trainee mode. Barnabas in there says, "Look, I'm willing to take this guy under my wing and, and mentor him." And it says right in that, that, that right in the quote, "Yes, he was mentored." So I see this not as an issue of Paul was unforgiving, but Paul recognized objectively, he wasn't ready for the responsibility. Yes, over here. Paul knew that he was a lightning rod for Satan. And as you pointed out, John Mark wasn't ready to do that. And what will Satan do? He will always attack the weakest link. And so if John Mark goes with Paul, who is he going to attack? He's going to attack John Mark. And perhaps in doing so, not only, you know, mess up the, the mission, so to speak, Yeah. But also put his salvation at risk because he wasn't prepared yet at that point, as as it is brought out. Yeah, I agree. Yes. Sometimes you don't have energy for two things. Yeah. You know, he had the energy to go and do his own mission, but he didn't have the energy to drag someone else along with him at the same time. I think that's. I, I agree. Monday's lesson looks at Onesimus and Philemon. Both uh, believers in Jesus, Onesimus was a slave who ran away from his owner Philemon to Paul. When Paul discovered that he was a runaway slave, what did Paul do? What action did Paul take? He sent him back to his owner, but how did he send him back? Pardon? He wrote a letter, and, and what was the letter? What was the context? What was the the, the, the the summation of the primary point of the letter? Treat him as he was my son, living It was a, it was love him. He's a he's a member of the family. Take him back, forgive him, treat him as a son, as a brother. That's what he, that was the message. Well, why didn't Paul start an underground railroad for runaway slaves? Too many of them? wasn't his mission. <laughs> wasn't his mission? Why didn't Paul speak out against slavery? He did. Did he? Well, Tell me where he did. Show me. Well, he gave the solution to slavery. But did he speak out publicly against slavery? He didn't overtly do it, but he did provide the, the foundation that would okay. destroy. Okay. That, that's a different, he worked against it in a different way, but he didn't speak out against it. And many people miss this. If a So, so re, third paragraph in the lesson says, at first glance, it is somewhat surprising that Paul did not speak more forcefully against the evils of slavery. But Paul's strategy was far more effective. The gospel ideally breaks down all class distinctions. The apostle sent Onesimus back to Philemon, uh, not as a slave, but his, as his son in Jesus and as Philemon's beloved brother in the Lord. So, if a slave owner comes to love his slave as much as his own son what happens he's no longer a slave is he no did anybody see the movie ben hur the old movie with charlton heston okay do you remember ben hur ended up being a slave to a proconsul of rome and the proconsul came to love him like a son and what happened <clears throat> He not only set him free, he adopted him as his son and made him his heir. That's the gospel. And that is the gospel, yes. So which approach would have the best impact on resolving not only slavery, but all divisions between people? Working politically to overthrow the system of government that sponsors slavery, the Spartacus approach, or working to bring love, the love of God into the hearts of all people, the Pauline approach? So this is what Wendell was saying. He absolutely attacked the roots of slavery without going public political agenda by working in the hearts of men to bring the love of God for all people. Yes? Paul was imitating Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus never spoke out publicly against Rome, even though many of their practices was absolutely horrendous. He attacked, as you pointed out, the root of the issue. Because if you don't cure the root... It doesn't matter. So, yes, go ahead. Well, we don't see Paul either promoting slavery. We don't see him supporting. Right. So, so your next question, because the Bible writers didn't explicitly act politically and speak out against these human rights abuses in the society of their time, does that mean they endorsed, supported, condoned, or in any way approved of these abuses? And that's what you're saying. no. Or a campaign for a senator that promotes. right. There you go. And so today, as Christians, if there are Christians today who don't don't act politically, don't want to use the church's energy to get politicians elected or judges appointed, does that mean then that they endorse any potential governmental abuses because they don't want to act politically? Is that what that mean that? See, this is one of the the, the tricks of Satan. He wants to point out an issue that is absolutely evil, slavery. Pick your issue of today. And then he wants you to use his methods to oppose the issue. Let's get political. Let's get in the mud. Let's do the dirty deeds of the other person. The ends justify the means. Rather than saying, hey, we do oppose slavery as Paul did be, uh, because we oppose the selfishness and the corruption in the hearts of men that lead one to treat someone else as less than themselves. We want to bring love into the hearts of all people so that we'll all love each other equally. That's how we do I can promise you, you can take control of any government in any point in history in the entire world and pass whatever laws that you want and they will not change hearts. You cannot change hearts with legislation. Tuesday's lesson. The lesson points out that God gives different people different abilities and and different spiritual gifts for the benefit of the entire body of believers. We all agree with that, right? How does Satan exploit that fact, those differences, to incite division? How does he do that? Jealousy comparing ourselves to others and, and then becoming jealous, okay? How about inciting fear of those that are different? Fear and, and this and this comes first from our our fear as soon as adam and eve sinned they ran and hid because they were afraid. It's an inherent corruption that we've inherited that we have insecurities and fear and we fear and doubt ourselves and we're afraid that we won't be loved and we're afraid we won't be good enough and we're afraid we won't be liked and we're afraid we're going to fail. So we have all these deep insecurities and so unconsciously we're comparing ourselves to somebody who might do it better and if we're not mature enough to learn and grow from their example then we attack them as doing it different than us. They're wrong. They're wrong for doing it that way. Because if we're we're level four thinkers, right and wrong type thinkers, and, and they're doing it different from us, well, one of us has to be wrong. And if we're insecure and we can't acknowledge, well, maybe I have some things to learn. Maybe I need to mature. Maybe this is an area that I need to update myself on. If we're not mature, what do we do? Well, I can't be wrong, so they must be wrong. And you see this happening all the time. And so we see these fears. We fear people who are different than us leads to race distinctions. Why men dominate women and don't want them to occupy positions of leadership. Fear causes people to make decisions not based on, now listen carefully, not based on ability, competencies, character, but on the color of the skin or gender. And whenever we do this, and we don't look at competencies, we don't look at capacities, we don't look at abilities, we don't look for gifting, we don't look for for character we simply look for some objective and measurable thing that has nothing to do with capacity, like the color of your skin is measurable, like your gender is measurable. If we look to those things, then the church suffers, the organization suffers, because we deny ourselves the benefit and the blessing of those skills. And we don't make decisions. So the church suffers when we make ordination gender-based, rather than gifting of the Holy Spirit-based. The church suffers. Did anyone see the movie The Imitation Game? The Imitation Game. It was a true story about Alan Turing. Probably uh, one of the geniuses of time. Alan Turing, during World War II, basically single-handedly built the first computer that was able to decode the German Enigma code machine and break their codes that allowed, and what they estimate, it shortened the war by two years and saved 14 million lives. (laughs) Think of his achievement. But, and afterwards, because of his genius, he started to work in the computer industry. You know, the war ended in 1945. Seven years later, he's working, developing things, but he gets arrested for homosexual conduct. He gets chemi- he chooses chemical castration instead of imprisonment. And this as you all know, when you mess with hormones of somebody, it can significantly alter mood and alter your life experience and he died by suicide in 1954. Why? Think of the genius that we cheated humanity out of. For what? Because we weren't basing decisions on character, integrity, capacity, ability, but on some measurable thing that was judged to be wrong. And later, I think it was 2007, he ex- ex- received a pardon from the queen. And then they passed a law that all people in the history of England who was convicted of, of homosexual as a crime had their records expunged and were pardoned. The government publicly gave an apology to him. Sure, it didn't do him any good. He's dead, but for his family, perhaps. What about in the church? What does the church miss out on because we have bigotry, biases, and fears that cause us to reject others who have mature character and capacities and gifts simply because of our bigotry, biases, and fears? Thursday's lesson. Are you proud how I'm cruising today? <laughs> Thursday's lesson. The lesson focuses on resolving conflict in the church and points us to Jesus' counsel, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just be between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. What do you hear in this? How and To whom and how is this to be applied? Is it to be applied to people who are members of the same organizational institution, but with whom you have no personal contact? Is that who you apply this to? They're a member of my church. I'm a Methodist. I'm an Adventist. I'm a Baptist. And, and I've heard this thing going on. I don't know them. But they're a member. So they're a member of the church. I've got to go do this. The cases of personal trespass. You hear a rumor that a person in the church has done a certain sin. You've only seen this person on a rare occasion. And you have no personal relation with them. Should you go to the person and talk to them about the rumor? Does Jesus' counsel apply to this circumstance? Notice his counsel starts, if your brother sins against you. His counsel doesn't apply to a rumor you heard against somebody else. You haven't been sinned against. How many people miss that, think it's their job to be church police? (laughs) Look for any infractions that might float through the ether of rumor and gossip and bring it to the attention of the church authorities for action. I've had experiences like this. People who belong to the same institution, but have no relation with me, hear a rumor. They don't know me. They haven't spent time with me. They haven't sat down to talk with me. But they felt it their responsibility to either tell me how they thought I was wrong or write letters or put out on public forums and statements or on the, on the Internet all their criticisms against how they think I'm wrong. Occasionally, I think one time, somebody, maybe twice, called out to have a conversation before they went public, and the reason they called me is they wanted to check the box. I had to talk to you first before I could go public and criticize you. Because the box says I have to talk to you one-on-one first. So they called me, talked to me, and then went public. <laughs> see, and that, that, That's diagnostic of their level of thinking. It's rules, see? Level four. There's no concern for me. There's no concern for my reputation. There's no concern for what's actually just and right and reasonable and healthy. There's only concern... For them, not getting in legal trouble with God, because God, hey, I, I checked the box, I talk to him first, I followed the rules, you know, I'm on base, you can't tag me out, Lord. <laughs> and so, one of the founders gave this quote out of First Testimonies 166. I have seen the great sacrifice which Jesus made to redeem man. He did not consider his own life too dear to sacrifice. Jesus said, love others as I have loved you. Do you feel, when a brother errs, that you could give your life to save him? If you feel thus, you can approach him and affect his heart. Thus, uh, and, and affect his heart. You are just the one to visit that brother. But it is lamentable fact that many who profess to be brethren are not willing to sacrifice any of their opinions or their judgment to save a brother. There is but little love for one another. A selfish spirit is manifested. Do you see someone struggling? You think they're doing something wrong? Do you love them enough that you would die for them? If not, be quiet. That's what she's saying. Has this been your personal experience about those who approach you? I can tell you it was not my experience when I was approached. Do you again see the two law lenses here? You know, checklist, follow the rules, versus design law and and what Christ is designing to work together to bring healing and reconciliation. Yes, a hand somewhere? Yes. What if you love them, but they won't listen to you? Yes, then you present the truth in love and you leave them free. Very simple. Just leave them free. I love you. It's okay. You don't have to listen. They'll be angry at you. <laughs> but, you but you give them the freedom. It's okay if you need to be angry at me. I'm, but you don't, you don't become a pest. You don't hound them. To my approach, if, if I have that relationship, and I've had that relationship with some people, I'm going to tell you, I've had a relationship with people that I had a love relationship, a friendship relationship with, that was in a relationship. They were heading toward marriage, and I had serious concerns because I had some factual knowledge about the person they were going to marry, did not think they were a good, wise fit for each other, and I went to them. And I shared my concerns and and the reasons why I didn't think this was a good fit. One time. But I said, but this is your choice. You're a free, sentient individual. You can ignore what I'm going to say. And if you choose to move forward with this, I will support you 100% and hope you have the healthiest relationship ever. And, And they did. And years down the road, it collapsed and fell apart. And we had some conversations later. And they said, you're the only person who actually warned me. You were right. They didn't like to hear it at the time. They were upset at the time. They were a little irritated. I wouldn't say they were angry, but they were, you could tell they, were, they did not like me raining on their parade, and, but I left them free. But it's okay. But I didn't hound them. I didn't pester them. Uh, are we willing to put things in the best light of others, or do we misconstrue and twist what others say? So this is out of um, Councils to Writers, page 50. If a brother differ with you on some point of truth, do not stoop to ridicule. Do not place him in a false light or misconstrue his words, making sport of them. Do not interpret his words and rest them of their true meaning. This is not conscientious argument. Do not present him before others as a heretic when you have not with him investigated his positions, taking scripture text by text in the spirit of Christ to show him what is truth. You do not yourself really know the evidence he has for his faith, and you cannot really clearly define your own positions. And so she goes on to say, you see the principle described here. Well, this week I received an email from one of our online listeners who found on some other website a rebuttal of my position in my book, The God-Shaped Heart on Homosexuality, and in the lecture series, God in Your Church on Homosexuality. And this is a piece of the rebuttal. It's a quote. Dr. Jennings calls out the Christian community for a lot of ignorance and a lot of misinformation. He believes that we have to start with facts. We have to start with truth. He asks, are you willing to look at evidence and facts, or do you want to hold beliefs that are refuted by evidence and facts? But then he goes on into these facts. But when he goes on into these facts, we find that they don't prove what he thinks they prove. Most of his arguments involve very rare abnormalities. First, he brings out androgen insensitivity syndrome, where a person is genetically male, XY, but has no testosterone receptors, so the child develops to look outwardly female. Dr. Jennings makes the first of many errors in his video when he says that all babies begin as females. And hormones, particularly testosterone, cause the babies to masculinize. At fertilization, every individual is either genetically female or male and the baby develops as female or male according to the genetics Dr. Jennings inadvertently acknowledges this when he says that the male babies have testes even with AIS did you hear the misrepresentation? did you hear the distortion? the the dishonesty of my position? did you hear it? because they're chromosomally male this person is taking the position that when I say all fetuses start out female I'm lying That they don't start out female, they start out male. I I left out a word, start out phenotypically female. You see, all fetuses start out with female genitalia, external. And it requires the, the testosterone to masculinize and those end organs to change, and the brain to masculinize. But I didn't use the word phenotypical, but any reasonable person, as I go and you listen to my explanation, realizes that's what I'm describing. But this person, because I didn't say that, because there are chromosomes, because there are testes, even though they can't now do their job to masculinize the end organs and masculinize the brain, they're saying that I'm, my misrep, that person's still male. I can tell you, androgen insensitivity syndrome females are not male. They're female. In every way that matters. <laughs> They have they their brains are female, they are attracted to men, they have no maximization at all. This is an example of not reaching out to understand and not being honest with what was presented and misconstruing it to make a point in a false light. And then we're going to close with Friday, because I really want to get into what was in Friday too. Uh, The question in the third question says, If we look at our church, that is the Seventh-day Adventist church as a whole, what is the greatest thing holding us back from the kind of unity that will be needed in order to reach the world? Is it our teachings and doctrines? Of course not. These are the very things that God has given us to proclaim to the world. I would suggest that it is doctrinal. One specific doctrine, and that's clinging to the false law lens lie that god's law functions like human law and a whole cascade of how we interpret everything else is corrupted into an imperial legalistic system where god ends up looking no different than satan has accused him to be this leads to rules-based thinking where we need police we need to police the system to ensure members are keeping the rules and doing it the right way and then we have people looking over our shoulders to make sure we comply to the right way of thinking and the right way of teaching from the thought uh, from thoughts on the Mount of Blessing, page one twenty three. I'm going to close with three interest, two interesting quotes, or maybe three. This one: the effort to earn salvation by one's own works inevitably leads men to pile up human exactions as barriers against sin. For seeing, in other words, they're not experiencing the heart transformation. They are experience- they are l- working really hard to keep all the rules. That's that's what this is about: rule keeping. For seeing that they fail to keep the law, they will devise rules and regulations of their own to force themselves to obey. Can't do this on Sabbath, can't do that on Sabbath, and can't eat this and can't do that. All these turn, All this turns the mind away from God to self. His love dies out of the heart, and with it perishes love for his fellow man. A system of human invention with its multitudinous exactions will lead its advocates to judge all who come short of the prescribed human standard, no jewelry. The atmosphere of selfish and narrow criticism stifles the noble and generous emotions and causes men to become self-centered judges and petty spies. And I can tell you many people don't like church because that's how they feel when they go there. And then, what does it all stem from? I'm going to read two quotes to close with. This is what it all stems from. This is what it's all going to sum, sum, the summation will be over. Great Controversy, page 582. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle, we are now entering a battle between the laws of men, rules imposed, And the precepts of Jehovah, design protocols for life. Between the religion of the Bible, design protocols, and the religion and fables of tradition. And then, one last quote, Prophets and Kings 6.25. There is no such thing as weakening or strengthening the law of Jehovah. It has been as it has been, so it is. It always has been and always will be holy, just, good, complete in itself. It cannot be repealed. It cannot be changed. What kind of a law cannot be repealed? See, can you repeal a legislated law? Yes, Yes, you cannot repeal design law. This is another evidence that God's laws are the protocols upon which reality are built. Between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah will come the last great conflict of the controversy between truth and error. Again, what kind of laws do men enact? The laws of men are rules, laws of Jehovah design protocols. This is the grand conflict at the end. And we as a church have been infected and accepted the human law construct with its imperial rules with an imperial judge who must punish and then we have Jesus paying our penalty and the whole penal substitution theology is a corruption of that that we teach in all of our institutions And thus, our church is held paralyzed and can't finish the work. And then the quote. Upon the battle we are now entering, a battle not between rival churches contending for supremacy but between the religion of the Bible and the religions of fable and tradition. See, we are not in a battle between rival churches? Think about the eschatology of the Adventist church. Now it's often presented. It's often presented as the SDA church pitted against the Roman church and all of its daughters that we are fighting against these church systems. This is not what we're fighting against. We're not against the Roman Catholic church. We're not against any sunday keeping church. Not at all. That's a lie. It's fraud. That's part of the penal substitution imperial law construct. We are fighting against the the, the construct that God's government runs no different than a human government. That he runs his universe like a Caesar runs Rome. That his laws are, are rules that have no consequence except for him who must punish us for it unless he must be paid. This is the issue. And we are called, Revelation chapter 14, first angel's message, be in awe of God and glorify him by revealing his character for the hour for his judgment, now offer people to judge him correctly as come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in is. Worship the designer and stop worshiping this dictator lie that has corrupted Christianity. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are our creator. Lord, we can see the battle lines. We can see how so many people falsely accept this distortion about you. We ask now for the outpouring of your spirit to enlighten, to empower, to open avenues of communication, to bring to to the the forefront this issue so that people can clearly see it and start making intelligent choices to break free from this false legal system. And that you might come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.